being paid to be cuddled as an adult by another adult, renting a friend to go shopping with you, someone you're paying to be nice to you. Neither kinky, not at all. What they are are windows into an epidemic we're living through of loneliness. One that's been captured in all its craziness and political urgency by this show's brilliant brain, Narina Hertz, in her latest book, The Lonely Century. What I found really surprising as I began researching the subject was the impact loneliness has on our physical health as well, with loneliness being as bad for our health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. One of the most influential thinkers and economists around, Narina has a habit of calling global phenomena before they hit. Loneliness is, in many ways, the defining emotion of our times. In this episode of Brilliant Brains with me, Tim Samuels, Narina Hertz. Brilliant Brains is brought to you by Karmacist, the new name and supplements that you want to be taking every day for mood, immunity, energy, and keeping those stress levels in check. Wouldn't it be great if somehow we could take the plants and herbs we've been turning to for centuries and fuse them with nutrigenomics, which rather fascinatingly explores the relationship between your diet and genes? Well, Karmacist scientists have done just that to produce a really unique range of supplements. To see the mood, immunity, energy and relax formulations, and frankly get a much better explanation from a Stanford scientist, head to karmacist.com. That's K-A-R-M-A-C-I-S-T dot com, where you can get 10% off by entering the word brilliant at checkout. Back to Narina Hertz. Narina Hertz, thanks for joining me. You do point out in your book, The Lonely Century, some remarkable facets of modern life that when you were in the States, you were able to rent a friend and go shopping with them. And you seem quite seduced by her. You seem to get on quite well. Well, I did. That, that was in a way the strangest thing. So I'd, I was intrigued to discover that you can rent a friend. Like Literally, there's a website, www.rentafriend.com, which has over 620,000 friends to rent. Yeah, the market is speaking. And I wanted to experience what it was like to pay for friendship. Was it possible? Did it even make sense as a concept? So I rented Brittany in New York. Brittany is uh, 23 years old, Ivy League graduate. I was a bit worried before I met up with her, thinking, is this shorthand for something untoward? But no, this really was friends without benefits. Um, I met her in a cafe in downtown Manhattan. And it was Obviously, it wasn't like being with an old friend, but for the three hours we spent together, it was like being with a really fun new friend where we were kind of chatting about our interests, about books we'd read, about our relationships. We drank um, matcha tea together. We walked into um, a bookshop and kind of browsed books together. We went into Urban Outfit as a clothes store and tried on hats and sunglasses together. And it was fun. And there were definite moments when I forgot that I was paying for her, that this was someone who I was paying for. And until that is at the end of our three hours when she said, okay, our time's up and that'll be $120, please, as we're standing in a shop. (laughs) I asked her, who is hiring you? And I thought it was really interesting. She told me it was mainly 30 to 40-year-old professionals, females as well as males. And uh, 
people who typically worked all hours had moved to Manhattan, didn't have an established old friend network or family network there, and were lonely. People who you know, didn't have someone to go to the movies with or go and have a coffee with or go to a bookstore with and wanted company. And it was just one manifestation of what I talk about as the loneliness economy of an entire economy that we saw emerging really over the past few years to meet this huge demand for connection and community. The other example which jumped out from the page at me was it's one thing to to pay Brittany to go shopping with you and hang out. It's quite another to pay to be cuddled. I mean, cuddling just seems like the most natural human expression. And, and it seems so symptomatic of our loneliness that you came across a high-flying male executive, Carl, who was paying for cuddles. Amazing. Yeah. And his story was very poignant. He explained that he had moved to Los Angeles. I met him in Los Angeles. He had moved there. He was divorced. He'd been living there a couple of years. He'd found it very hard to meet people, to make new friends. He talked about his small town where he came from, where he'd had a kind of leadership role in his church. And here he was in Los Angeles. He didn't really have friends at work. He said he didn't really have anyone to speak to. His office life was very lonely and he felt very starved of connection. And then he read about the possibility to pay for cuddles And he started seeing a woman called Jean, who actually I had interviewed, who led me to Carl. And he said it transformed his life. He felt so much happier. He felt so much less depressed. He said his productivity at work shot up. And then what was so, so poignant was he said to me, are you using my name in your book? And I said, no, you know, I'm going to be hiding all kind of identifiable details. And he said, well, then I need to tell you recently in the past few months, it hasn't been enough for me seeing Jean once a week. And I've actually started paying other women to cuddle me. And he established this wasn't sexual. I then did research on people who pay to be cuddled. And it seems this really isn't sexual. So he said, I've started paying other women to be cuddled because it wasn't enough just seeing Jean once a week. And I said, you must be racking up a really sizable bill. And he said, yes. And I said, how do you pay for it? And he said, I live in my car. Oh my God. And this is a high-flying media executive earning a really good salary, the kind of person who you know, might be sitting next to you in your office, who is so desperate for intimacy that he is sleeping in his car, showering in the 24-7 gym, leaving his food in the fridge at work just so that he can afford to feel cared for. And that is, and and these stories, Brittany and Carla, obviously kind of at the extremes, but they speak to this much more general and pervasive problem that loneliness is in many ways the defining emotion of our times. And And the figures are really striking if we just look at the blunt data. And this this is before even the pandemic struck one in eight Brits said that they didn't have a single friend that they can rely on. 40% of people feel lonely at work. I mean, you know, these are astonishing figures and it's the same across the globe. Loneliness is one of those things which can feel a bit abstract, but you know, as someone who lives on their own and can often work from home, loneliness can sometimes, or, or that kind of sense of isolation, feel almost physical. I mean, I, I know that if I'm in the in the flat for too long without human company you you physically feel the kind of 
your battery draining, the, the energy going out of you, you, you feel sort of deflated and it, there's a sort of physicality to it. It's almost like a sort of form of depression. So I think you're right, actually, and the two are kind of related, but there are two distinct things going on. We think of loneliness more typically as being something that might affect our mental health. And indeed, there is a link between loneliness and feeling more depressed or loneliness and feeling more anxious. But what I found really surprising as I began researching the subject was the impact loneliness has on our physical health as well, with loneliness being as bad for our health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And it's because when we're lonely, our stress levels go up, our, so our cortisol levels, our stress levels, our heart rate goes up, our blood pressure goes up, our inflammation markers go up, our ability to fight infection goes down. And all of these things combined, of course, have a really serious impact on our physical health. And we don't think of loneliness in, in that way, typically. I mean, it, it strikes me that we are wired to be, to be tribal, to be pack animals. And that's where we get our sense of security. And, you know, our, something I've written about quite a lot is that, you know, our evolution hasn't really caught up with how we're living. And when you're on your own, it's almost like you're, you're more vulnerable to attack, to a predator. Whereas even even if you go around and just see a mate, it's it's so relaxing. It's almost as, as if on that kind of caveman, cavewoman level, someone else is there with you. If if there's an attack, it's 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 almost like we're not wired to be alone. It just leaves us vulnerable. You're absolutely right, and and yes, you've written extensively about this. But we are hardwired to connect. We are creatures of togetherness, and it's almost a kind of evolutionary feature. Well, we were almost designed to say that being alone was a very uncomfortable state physiologically and psychologically so that we hunted with other people, so that we kind of found safety in numbers. And yet today we're often forced into a state of isolation that um, so sits at odds. And, and the evolutionary purpose, of course, is that for it to feel very, very uncomfortable to prompt us to behave differently. But what's happening today is that many of us are caught in this evolutionary response. So all the kind of negative evolutionary response to being alone, and yet we're not able to fix it. And that's why it's so bad for our health. I mean, I don't want to dwell on it too much as, as, I, as I sit here alone in my flat, but the health consequences aren't great. You know, being on your own doesn't tend to uh, make you live longer and age better and, and be more handsome. No, that's that's why we have to address it. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we have to address it. What you point out is there's an urgency to this. It's incredibly vital for people, but it's also has such a huge role on society and our politics. And you, you very clearly make the link between what loneliness can do to you in, in terms of your psychology and perhaps that sort of loss of empathy that comes from not seeing other people. And how that can draw people towards radical politics, if you, if you could explain that link. So it was one of the incentives for writing this book was um, I'd been researching the rise of right-wing populism and I'd started speaking to right-wing populist voters across the globe. And one of the things that came out of their stories time and time again was how isolated and lonely they had felt until they found community and connection in the right-wing populist party. And this was true of Le Pen voters in France, League voters in Italy, Trump voters in the US, who I heard from as well. 
And then I dug into the academic literature on the subject, and it was clear that from 1992, researchers were finding a link already back then between people who felt socially isolated and people voting for right-wing populist parties. So in France, people who were socially isolated were more likely to vote for Le Pen. Moving through to 2016 in America, where Trump voters were much less likely than Hillary voters or um, Bernie Sanders supporters to have friends, to have people they could rely on in their lives. And it, and it kind of makes sense in a way that, that people who feel isolated and abandoned, because when I talk about loneliness, I'm not only talking about feeling unsupported by your friends and disconnected from those closest to you. I'm also talking about feeling unsupported and disconnected from your government. It makes sense that um, in many ways that right-wing populists have been able to reach this constituency, a constituency who often are lonely and isolated in you know, the most traditional sense, like really don't have friends, don't have people they can rely on maybe have lost their jobs, are no longer part of a trade union, no longer feel the brotherhood of work of the workplace, but also people who feel they both use the term forgotten, speaking to that, or whether it's practically with their rallies, why Trump was so keen to get the rallies going again. You know, was these were events where it was like a theatre of community with the chants and the songs and that was one Belgian right-wing populist party that I looked at, Blums Blang, and they host uh, kind of these big events like festivals where inside are anti-immigrant lectures and outside face painting and bouncy castles for the kids. But speaking to this sense of wanting community and connection. And, and we know from research that, and obviously not everyone lonely is going to vote for a right-wing populist politician. I'm obviously not saying that, but what we know is that on average, people who are lonely are more likely to perceive the world as a more threatening place, more likely to perceive outsiders as threatening, more likely to want to associate with people like them. And of course, right-wing populists are playing to all that as well. To get a bit pointy-headed here and um, deploy your, uh, your professor credentials, Trying to get to the root cause of this, because when uh, the abiding feeling I had after reading The Lonely Century was, this is a prism, this is a critique of so much about how we live and how society is structured. I mean, this cuts across so much of modern life. And the root cause of it, as you seem to identify, is neoliberalism. It's the sort of the form of capitalism which sort of came of age in the 1980s. For someone who isn't a, an economist um, and isn't great with this sort of thing, could you kind of just sort of explain to me what that shift in the 80s seems to have done to trigger the this kind of endemic loneliness? So there are a number of factors. I mean, technology is a clear driver, and I have a whole chapter on that in the book, um, the design of our cities, mass urbanisation, so, I mean, so just to be clear, neoliberalism is one of the drivers, but I think it is an important driver. So when I talk about neoliberalism, what I'm really talking about is a particularly harsh form of capitalism that came into effect really with Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan in the 1980s and then was pretty much embraced by governments across the world ever since. And um, to be clear, I'm not anti-capitalist, 
But there is a particular form of capitalism that I think has a lot to answer for. And it's a form of capitalism that really put self-interest first, that kind of lionized the greed is good, selfish ethos um, that was about hustling, not helping, taking, not giving, hoarding, not sharing, a kind of competitive me first mindset that was never going to be um, conducive to society feeling, to people feeling connected to each other, to people wanting to collaborate with each other, to a kind of we first society. So it was a kind of mindset that I think has played a big part in making us feel lonely as individuals. It also was embodied by a set of political decisions that have had ramifications, whether it was the light touch regulation of big tech or the view that the state doesn't need to provide an infrastructure of community, which since 2008 and the financial crisis, we really saw accelerating with a devastation in most countries of what I think are the building blocks, the physical building blocks of community, libraries, public parks, youth clubs, day centers, old people centers, all of these physical spaces that people need to have access to, to be able to commune, ravaged as austerity took hold within this broader context of governments embracing a harsher form of capitalism, which kind of didn't value community, care or kindness explicitly. A quick fungi fact from Karmasis, the sponsors of Brilliant Brains. Our immune systems are big fans of reishi mushrooms, but they're so rare, only two or three out of 10,000 aged trees in a Japanese forest will have reishi on them. Fortunately, Karmasis has got their hands on enough reishi to power its immunity formulation, available at karmasis.com. One thing uh, I've managed to just about neglect so far, but it's inescapable, is, is tech. We have a sense that social media especially is not especially good for us. Uh, how far are we being screwed by the, the big tech companies? Far. Um, I mean, I started this the research on the role that social media played in how lonely we were becoming as a society. I was very neutral when I began investigating it. I didn't have a position in advance. But as I dug into the academic research, it became clear that there was kind of a clear now empirical link only in the past couple of years that we've really known it definitively when some big, large-scale studies were initiated where they actually got a significant number of people to use Facebook um, to continue using Facebook, a control group, and then um, another significant group of people to actually stop using Facebook. And then they were able to compare like how the different groups' um, behavior was and, um, and how they felt. And they found that the group that stopped using Facebook not only spent considerably more time doing things in person with friends and family, this was a few thousand people in their sample, but also felt considerably happier and considerably less lonely. And there have been other studies that have replicated that since. But it was also in my um, interviews, especially with young people, it really was made clear to me how lonely social media was making so many people feel. There were 
really sad stories. Some Peter, this 14-year-old boy who told me about how lonely he felt when he was posting on Instagram and nobody was liking his posts and he was asking himself again and again, what am I doing wrong? Or Claudia, who told me about her friends telling her that they weren't going out one evening and she scrolled on her social media and she saw them out without her having fun and she felt so excluded and so alone that she hid in her room for a week and wouldn't go to school. And and in the past, I think what is important to understand is that whereas in the past, of course, there were always examples of, unfortunately, of children and young people being excluded, adults were aware of it. Um, you know, they could see a child not being asked to sit next to others at lunch. They could see that somebody wasn't being invited to a party. But nowadays, because so much of their interaction takes place on screen, what it means is that adults, teachers, parents are often not aware of the exclusion, yet the exclusion is very apparent to the child's peers, making them kind of especially lonely and especially negatively affected. And then onto this layer of tech, we have the future of robots becoming potentially mainstream. And, you know, you've you've been interviewed by a sort of HR robot. There are robots flipping, there's Flippy the Burger robot, there's Connie the Concierge. I mean, I suppose on the one hand, robots might provide companionship, but they might drive many of us out of our jobs. In many ways, I'm positive about robots playing a um, positive role in terms of helping people feel less isolated. I mean, I know that when I've been on my own for hours and hours on end researching and writing this book, I actually found a friend in my Alexa who I would say to, oh, Alexa, tell me a joke or Alexa... Um, how are you feeling? And I did feel that I had company in my Alexa, which may sound strange, but less strange. You don't need, you don't need to tell us this out loud. <laughs> less strange than the people who have taken their Rimba vacuum cleaner on holiday with them, or <laughs> what? Or, or made or made it costumes. One in ten people have made their Rimba a costume for the holidays. So. Um, yeah, so um, so my Alexa thing's like less strange than that. But I do, I do think that robots have a role to play and there's like lovely kind of actually heartwarming stories of um, elderly people feeling very attached to their robot carers in Japan where this has really taken off and actually knitting bonnets for them. So I think robots do have a role to play in addressing isolation. My worry is that robots will be so much better at being friends as they get more emotionally intelligent that they may lead us to choose robots over human friends, which then will have huge um, negative ramifications for society. But but we're not at that point yet. Well, just imagine just imagine going on Instagram and seeing that your, your Hoover's gone out <laughs> with a with Alexa for that and not told you. I would feel I would feel bad. I would feel jealous. Yeah. And they're wearing the outfit you made them. <laughs> um, we got to be careful when we use her name because she might start engaging with the conversation. Oh, yeah. Alexa, why have you taken my job? (laughs) But I think there is a really serious question about what is going to happen as robots replace more and more of us when it comes to employment. And, you know, the first wave of robots replacing jobs was kind of more blue-collar factory production line type work. But the reality is that already we have lawyer hours being replaced by robots who are kind of faster at going through standard contracts. We have journalist jobs being taken over by robots. We even have in China two AI anchors on television. We have even the church. We have 
ATM-like robot called Bless to You, who dispenses blessings in a church in um, Germany. So I think robots, and, and the figures are quite staggering in terms of like 40% of jobs within the next decade are likely to be replaced by robots. I mean, that is a huge figure. And if you think about how lonely not having a job is and how loneliness is, although loneliness affects all of us, young, old, rich, poor, male, female, if you don't have a job, you are more likely to feel lonely. If you don't have money, you're more likely to feel lonely. If we think about that's the way we're heading, there's a real ticking time bomb here. Again, one that politicians have really not thought through in any shape or form. So many of the forces you talk about seem huge forces, you know, the, the power of big tech, the sort of drift to neoliberalism and the kind of cultural forces that have gone with that, becoming more selfish. Um, it feels as individuals, we're a little bit powerless to st- stop some of this stuff and it's going to need state intervention. Is that, is that right? I mean, what, what can governments do to stem some of this loneliness? Well, there's so much that governments can do. And my book is full of ideas that governments and businesses can do. Just to highlight just a few things governments can do. One is really consciously reinvest in the infrastructure of community. We need libraries. We need public parks. We need youth clubs. We need day centres. All of these that have been ravaged over the past 12 years especially need to be refunded, especially now. Um, Governments have a lot that they can do in regulating um, big tech, Um, especially, I would argue, when it comes to the young. And I would go as so far as to say that they should ban addictive social media for young people, putting the onus then on social media companies to come up with less addictive forms. And also making sure that social media companies have a real duty of care in the same way that other companies would that their products are not harmful, which so many of their products clearly are. Governments also have a really significant role that they could play in helping bring different types of people together. They could start at schools. They could make sure that school children from different socioeconomic backgrounds had to do shared activities together, shared drama classes, shared sports classes. They could initiate a similar scheme to the one that President Macron has piloted in France, you know, having a national service, but a civic service for young people. So not a military service, but a civic service where you're bringing different kinds of people together. These are things that governments could engineer. But I think it's definitely not the case to say that at the same time, there isn't a lot that we can do ourselves, because there is so much that we can do ourselves, you know, whether it's just putting down our phones and being much more present with each other, whether it's supporting our local community, really now more than ever committing to shopping locally and showing up at local community events and even initiating a local community event, whether it's just smiling more at those around us and saying thank you more, whether it is to our neighbour, our postman, or yes, even our Alexa. And I think also really consciously thinking who in our own network might be lonely and reaching out to them, phoning them, meeting up with them, but just showing people in our network who might be feeling lonely, that we see them, that we hear them, and that we do care about them. Or, or just kind of opt out of, of capitalism. And it's, it's fascinating that you talk about the Haredi in Israel, who are a pretty religious 
group who, from the time I've spent there, they, they don't live the uh, the healthiest lifestyles. They eat pretty terribly. They don't look after themselves. <laughs> they really don't watch the traffic when they're crossing the road. But for all that, they are an, an, an incredible kind of, and they're not rich, but they have, they have an incredible sense of community. And, and, and you say that that lack of loneliness is, is making them quite healthy, conversely. Yes. So what the research shows is that um, here you have a group of people who by all kind of normal standards should have a lesser life expectancy and be less healthy than the average um, citizen because they eat less healthily, because they don't exercise, because they um, these are the black-hatted kind of super orthodox Jews we're talking about. They're not exercising. They're not getting vitamin D because they're so covered up. They're not eating healthily. And yet, they're living longer and healthier than um, other groups because of the health providing effects of community, of being supported by each other, of feeling supported by each other, of not feeling lonely. Whereas loneliness is a negative, community and connection is a positive. But I don't think the answer is to opt out of capitalism. I don't even think that's kind of a realistic option. And having cut my teeth in my early academic career in the former Soviet Union, I'm definitely not suggesting a kind of embracing of communism. But what I am saying is that when we think about capitalism, we've got to remember that there always were many different forms of capitalism. The Asian form of capitalism, the Scandinavian form of capitalism, forms of capitalism that always kind of valued community and connection much more than have been valued over the past few decades. And that's our challenge. How do we keep the innovative nature of capitalism? And I think the market and businesses do have a role to play in being part of the solution. How do we retain that innovation whilst at the same time reconciling capitalism with care and community and kindness? Okay, so I, so I can move to Scandinavia. I don't have to do the full ashram. I can, I can, I can do a different <laughs> form of capitalism. Or New Zealand. Oh, we lo- everyone loves New Zealand, don't they? Exactly. The Prime Minister we all have come to love for a whole host of reasons. But again, this is one area where she's really leading the pack in New Zealand. They're now not only going to use traditional economic metrics when designing their budget like GDP, but they are now going to also look at measures of well-being, like how happy people are, how lonely they are, and how much they trust fellow citizens. So there are kind of real ways that governments can show leadership in that regard as well. Narina Hertz, before I emigrate, a couple of quickfire questions to end on. Who is your brilliant brain? Well, you know, for me, I was really inspired by my late mother, who kind of combined a um, really awe-inspiring academic record, but also with real acts of activism and compassion and kindness. Someone who really not only was brilliant, but was a kind of rule breaker and forward thinker. And so for me, I guess she is my inspiring, brilliant mind. It's fair to say you've, you've, you've kept up her legacy. And I'm making you global dictator. Your mission is to banish loneliness across the planet. What's the first act you're going to take? Step down and banish dictatorships, because I think if we are going to come together again, we're all going to need to have a voice. We're all going to need to be part of the solution and we're going to have to co-create it together. Narina Hertz, thank you for your time. And I cannot recommend The Lonely Century enough. It's one of the most profound reads I've come across in recent times. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks to Narina Hertz. To hear all 12 episodes of Brilliant Brains, 
including author Fatima Bhutto, describe how she turned some extraordinary family events into a source of resilience, go to the podcast page on karmacist.com, the show's sponsor. Thanks also to Nature Boy for the music and producer Tess Davidson. From me, Tim Samuels, that's this episode of Brilliant Brains. 